I want to start today's message off by asking you a question. And it's not a rhetorical question. I actually want you guys to answer it. What are some things in your life that make you feel blessed? Your grandkids? The thousands of toys we have stuffed in our room. That's awesome. What are some other things that make you feel blessed? Jackie? Health? Yes, absolutely. Your family. Jesus, yes. Friends and faith, yes. Food. One of my favorites as well. Nice. A marsh to go exploring. That's awesome. Josh? A house. Jerry? Mm, Being a part of a family of believers. Yeah, those are great. I wanted to do this because I think sometimes with us living in such a broken world, with so many issues that we face every day, it can be so easy to focus on things that aren't going right. And as followers of Jesus, though, we have a reason to be hopeful, and that's Jesus' resurrection. We're in the middle of a sermon series, as I mentioned earlier, where we're walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is one of the biggest chapters in the New Testament that focuses on Jesus' resurrection. And one of the reasons that we're doing this series is because we've looked at how oftentimes during this season leading up to Easter, we spend a lot of time focusing on Jesus' death. And then we spend one day focusing on his resurrection, and then we go on to other topics. And while we think Jesus' death is really important. Yeah, it's, it's important. Jesus' resurrection is just as important and deserves an in-depth study. So that's what we're doing. And over the past two weeks, Brandon has been talking about the foundation that Jesus' death and resurrection provides for our faith. In fact, there is no gospel without the resurrection. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are complete fools for believing in Jesus and living our lives for his glory. Brandon shared a few of the important reasons why we can believe that Jesus' resurrection, though, is a historical fact. And we talked about the creed and how that lays the foundation for our faith. Today, however, is a transition in the passage where Paul is no longer trying to prove the resurrection or talk about the importance to our faith. He now transitions to talking about the benefits that it has for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 20 through 28. And yes, the words are going to be in the screen, but as usual, I'm going to be referencing different verses here and there that may or may not be on the screen. So I encourage you to take out your Bible or scavenge for one in the little pockets in the back of your pews and follow along with me. 
Um, before we do that, though, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and the fact that we can look at the things that you have for us and we can know the things that you want us to believe and as a result of that, how we should live. So Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the things that you have to say to us, the truths from your word, and that you would fill me with your spirit right now and help me to speak only your truth. Amen. So Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20, saying, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything that has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be in all and in all. Maybe all in all. Yeah. All right. So this passage contains a lot of word pictures and metaphors. And in order to fully understand the meaning of this passage, we have to understand what those images mean. The first and the most prominent word picture that is in this passage is this concept of first fruit. It talks multiple times about both Adam and Jesus being a first fruit. And that sounds weird to call someone a fruit, but that's what Paul is doing here. This term is referring to a practice that Israel used to do when they would farm, and more specifically, when they would harvest their crops. They would take the very first few crops or fruits or vegetables that they would harvest, and they would dedicate those harvests to the temple as an offering to God. And the idea behind this was that they were thanking God for providing them with their harvest, and it came with the expectation that God was going to continue providing more of that crop for them in the future and that the remainder of the crop would suffice for all that they needed and that it would take care of them. So, I mean, this topic of first fruits is is kind of a broad topic and it, it relates to how we should give offerings and stuff like that, but that's not really the point that Paul is trying to get at when he references Jesus and Adam as first fruits in this passage. Paul is focusing on the nuance of first fruits regarding the idea that with first fruits there is that expectation that more is to come. So in this passage, there are four ways this, that this idea of first fruit with an expectation of more to come is used. And two of them apply to Adam and two of them apply to Jesus. We're going to take some time and look at how these concepts are applied. The first two are in verse 21. 
Adam here is talked about as a first fruit and that he brings death into the world. This is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Um, and it's carried out in the story of the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. Most of you know the story well, so I'll just paraphrase it quickly. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden called Eden, and he gives them access to any tree that they want to eat from. And he says, there's just one tree that I want you to avoid. And if you eat of that tree, you will die. He lays out the penalty of eating the, the tree before they do it. Long story short, they eat from that tree. And God comes down and tells them that because you have sinned, just like I told you, you are going to die. So Adam, in this passage, is shown as a first fruit and that he brought the penalty of death for sin into the world. He was the first to sin and earn that penalty. And remember that concept of first fruit brings an expectation of more of that to come. And in this case, the expectation is fulfilled in the fact that all throughout history, mankind has experienced death. And still today, we sit here in this room facing the reality that in a hundred years from now, if Jesus doesn't come back, most, if not all of us, are probably going to be in a grave somewhere. We have that expectation that we will die as humans. So we see Adam here is listed as a first fruit of death. But Jesus is a first fruit of resurrection. And the, this first image of Jesus as a first fruit comes in direct contrast to Adam. Where Adam brought death into the world as a penalty for sin, Jesus conquered death when God raised him from the dead. Jesus, like the rest of humanity, faced the expectation of death, brought on by the first fruits of Adam. But for Jesus, his death was not a result of the penalty for his sin. Instead, Jesus willingly subjected himself to death in order to pay our penalty for, sin, for our sin. This was, all God's part of, this was all part of God's plan to bring redemption to this broken world. But equally a part of the plan is the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus' resurrection was a first fruit because he was the first to be raised from the dead permanently. His bodily resurrection transformed his old body into a new creation, and therefore he is no longer susceptible to death. Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as a first fruit in this passage because there is an expectation that those who belong to him, as listed in verse 23, will also rise with him. Jesus, in conquering death, offers the ability to those who place their trust in him to experience resurrection as well. And this is the promise that we cling to believers. And it's one that Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, which is a, a very famous um, passage that is used to give hope during funerals. I'm going to read it for you. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Therefore... 
we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Do you see how Paul connects those two? That the belief that we will rise with Jesus is a direct result of the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Reading on, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still asleep, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In this passage, Paul is telling the church of Thessalonica that when they die, we have hope amidst the sorrow because death is not the end of our lives. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have the expectation that we too will rise from the dead and live with God forever. Just like those first two, two first fruits of Adam brings death into the world and Jesus brings resurrection from the dead, the third and fourth first fruits listed in this passage carry the same concept of Adam messing things up and Jesus fixing it. The third image is brought out in this passage, brings us back to Adam, and shows the negative effects that sin has on the whole world. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it states that in Adam all die. And I believe this is referring to much more than just the fact that humans die as a result of sin. This is going back to Genesis chapter 3. After sin entered the world, the world became cursed as a consequence. The world we live in is horribly broken as a result of that sin. In verse 24 of this passage, Paul tells us that there are dominions, authorities, and powers at work in the world we live in that are opposed to God and raging war against him and all that this world was supposed to be. When you boil it down, I, I think you can stick these enemies into three main categories, that those that rage war against God. Death, spiritual enemies, and the natural effects of sin. All of these came into play when Adam chose to sin. We already talked about how death entered the picture from Adam. But for spiritual enemies, I think it's fair to say that these enemies existed before Adam ate of the tree and brought sin into the world. But if you think about it, they wouldn't really have any power or dominion over us if we weren't sinful because they would have absolutely nothing to offer us. There would be no temptation because we would realize that everything we have, everything we need, is found in God himself. And when they come to try to tempt us away from God, we'd be like, yeah, you're not offering me anything, dude. Like, God is so much better. And so they wouldn't have any power or dominion over us. The problem is, now today, we don't live that way. We seek satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment outside of God. We choose to take what we feel we are owed rather than allowing God to give us what we need. And I believe that tendency of the human race to, to live in selfish, foolish, and wicked ways is the root and the cause of all the pain and difficulty we face in this life. If you think through most of the pain that you've experienced in your life, chances are you can bring it back 
to someone's, either yours, which I think is, if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time, or other people's sin. All of this is the expected result of sin brought about by Adam. Because of Adam's sin, we expect that we are going to sin as well and face the negative consequences, and I would argue natural consequences, of the sin. Here in the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, it reminds us of Jesus' resurrection and gives us the hope in this promise. You see, in in contrast to Adam, where all die, in Christ, all are made alive. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have overcome the effects of sin. And he makes all things come alive. In his resurrection, he is the first to experience the radical healing of our broken world. And with the expectation, or sorry, with the resurrection comes the expectation that everything that is wrong with the world will be made new again. There's a quote from a scholar named N.T. Wright that illustrates this beautiful. He says, For Paul, the point of the resurrection is not simply that the Creator Don The Creator God has done something remarkable for one solitary individual, as some people today might imagine is the supposed thrust of the Easter proclamation. Sorry, he's a scholar, he uses weird words. But that in and through the resurrection, the present evil age has been invaded by the age to come. The time of restoration, return, covenant renewal, and forgiveness. An event has occurred as a result of which the world is a different place And human beings have the new possibility to become a different kind of person. This quote illustrates so well the fact that Jesus' resurrection is not just some historical fact from the past that we celebrate once a year, you know, because we're Christians and that's what we do. In fact, Jesus' resurrection is a cosmic-sized event that changes everything in our world and provides the cornerstone for our hope that we have as we deal with the brokenness of the world on a daily basis. The next phrase in this passage, and essentially the rest of um, this specific passage through verse 28, explains why this hasn't already taken place, why we're still dealing with the brokenness of this world, even though Jesus was raised from the dead about 2,000 years ago. It uses the phrase, each in turn, which in the, in the original Greek, it kind of carries this idea of an order, a military order, or a standing. And this phrase tells us that God has a specific order of events for his full plan of redemption to be brought to completion. It doesn't all happen at one time. It happens drawn out through time. And in this passage, we are told of two events that must occur before the full effects of Jesus' resurrection is realized. And these two events are Jesus' return, which we're told about in verse 23, and his reign from verse 25. The language of this passage clearly implies that all of these, or both of these, are future events. It says things like, when he comes, all will be made alive. The end will come. It's, It's switched from past tense to future tense in this passage. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus is both an event from the past and a hope that we look forward to in the future. We are currently in a waiting period where we're in anticipation 
where Jesus puts everything under his feet, which is the second key word picture in this passage found in verse 27. This concept of putting everything under his feet is a direct reference from Psalm 110 verse 1 from the Old Testament. It's, this is actually the most quoted chapter in the Old Testament. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's short and it's really cool. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troop will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. So there's a lot of cool imagery in that passage. We're not going to dive into it too much. Um, But this chapter from Psalms is a prophecy talking about how Jesus will come and fully reign. It points to a time when a descendant of King David, who wrote this psalm, will rule with ultimate authority and dominion over everything. And the word picture here of putting an enemy under your feet was, it comes from some of the um, celebrations that kings would do in the ancient world when they captured and defeated an enemy king. The victorious king would bring the enemy king before him and he would put his feet on top of the enemy, signifying a total victory over the enemy and that there was no chance for a comeback. The victory was final. And in my research for understanding what this phrase meant, I came across um, a story about how some ancient kings would actually like dig a hole underneath where they're like right in front of where their throne was and they would bury enemy kings like right there so that every time they sat on their throne and they put their feet down they would remember the victory that they had over those kings um, and we see an example of this actually in the old testament in joshua chapter 10 um, verses 20 through 25 um, and i kind of paraphrase this a little bit because there's a lot of other details that aren't important to understanding this word picture. Um, But in this, um, Israel was battling against five kings. And it says, now the five kings had fled and were hiding in a cave at Makeda. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the, thing, the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem. Now this would be before Israel conquered Jerusalem and it became an Israelite city, Hebron. And then these three kings who sound like they were tri- like leaders of an orc tribe, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. That's probably how they spoke. Uh, it said their names. Uh, when they brought these kings to Joshua, He summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with them, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do 
Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you're going to, to fight. So I think that's just a really cool chapter because it shows how, it not only shows how like putting your feet over an enemy shows the total conquering of them, it also shows the expectation of the future in that passage that you know, God had promised that there was more to come. But the, there's an even deeper theological significance to this idea of crushing the enemies under your feet. You see, right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God made a promise to them. He says that someone would be born of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and end the curse that is afflicting the world. This power to crush the serpent's head and heal the brokenness of our world is made possible by Jesus' resurrection, which brought about the defeat of death. Jesus is now ruler over everything because he is not subject to the effects of sin, but rather has conquered it and has placed it under his feet. He can and will destroy it altogether in the future. We see in verse 27 that God chose to put everything under Christ except for himself. And the reason for that is because God is not under the effects of sin, and so he doesn't need to have Christ rule over him. As a follower of Jesus, we belong to him. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have the expectation that sin no longer has power over us. And the truth is, that's not just future tense. That's now. When temptation comes our way, we can call on the power of Jesus' resurrection and not give in to it. And we know that looking forward in the future, that we will no longer have to deal with sin at all. Christ is going to rule over it and get rid of it. So as we seek to apply um, this passage, I want to ask you guys three questions. The first um, is not rhetorical. I want you guys to actually answer this. Um, Then the second two, um, just think about it um, yourself. Um, I think one of the good things we can do when we're studying Scripture um, both corporately and together, is to ask ourselves this, this question. What does this passage teach us about God's character? So what do we learn about God from this passage? Yeah, yeah. God wants to make our mistake right. Yeah, that's great. What else do we learn about God's character from this passage? Yeah, that's, that's, I like the way you worded that. It shows his, like, power. Like, he just, you know, he could do whatever he wants, and yet he chooses to have grace on us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He has a plan that he's going to see through, right? And I think in all those things, we can have hope because we have a God who is much bigger than the challenges we face. And instead, we can focus our lives on the blessings that God has given to us and enjoy those benefits we have as a resurrection. Two more questions. Just think about these in your head. Um, I'll pause for you to think about it in between each one. What sin is having dominion in your life that you need to allow Jesus to put under his feet?
And lastly, how is God specifically calling you to bring healing to this broken world during the time of waiting for Christ's return? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you are an amazing, big God who has power over sin and death. Lord, we thank you that you show us grace and that when we sinned as a race in the garden, you did not give up on us. But instead, you enacted your plan to defeat the power of sin and death. Lord, we thank you that you didn't stay dead, though, when you paid the penalty for our sin, but you rose again from the dead, and you give us the expectation that we, too, will rise from the dead, and that all the brokenness of this world will experience the radical healing of your resurrection. Lord, help us to live our lives with that in mind. Amen.